Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. So welcome to Kidney Talk, everyone. I am excited today because I have a long-term friend who's going to be a guest today. I've known Jackie Harris, uh, who I met back in 1993 when she caught wind of some of the things Renal Support Network was doing for patients. And she's like, oh, my goodness, I need to have these resources. And we've been friends ever since. She's now working as a liver transplant coordinator at Cedar sinai but was a kidney transplant coordinator and worked in the transplant community for years as a nurse. And she wrote a book called Kidney Transplant, The Patient's Guide. So she's going to give us some tips on transplantation. So welcome to the show, Jackie. Hi, Lori. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what made you get into the kidney kidney care field in the early 90s when we first met? Well, when I moved to California, I was offered a position in a an ICU that was very heavy in ventilator and renal patients for, for an interesting reason. Um, and then that transitioned to a renal floor and a great relationship with the team and, and the surgeon here. And next thing you knew it, a kidney transplant coordinator position opened up and it was my life calling. It really turned into a wonderful career. Um, I'm very much a patient advocate and, and into the education side of nursing. And so it's just been a fit fit. Um, one of those jobs where, you know, you say if you, if you love it, it's not really going to work. And that's how I feel about, about <laughs> transplant. <laughs> yeah. Find a job you'd volunteer to do and figure out how to get paid for it. How to get paid for well, it. Well, exactly. Well, we won't let your boss know that because you still want to raise, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about what prompted you to write this book called, uh, you know, you know, the guide to kidney transplantation. Yeah, it's kidney transplantation, the patient's guide. And I wrote it specifically for the pre-transplant patient in mind, um, either on dialysis or they're progressing towards needing to start, or even maybe they have a family member. So they're looking at a preemptive transplant as an option um, and realizing that there wasn't really something in this area for patients. There are books out there for physicians, fellows, nurses, um, but none that are patient-specific. So seeing that each center kind of had its leaflets or maybe a little binder or a folder of information, there really wasn't a resource available that had the A to Z covering pre-transplant. You know, what happens when you're hospitalized? What can you expect post-transplant? Um, and then a little bit of the advocacy and the financial end, really having it as, as a one-stop shop um, was really important. So, like I said, just doing the research um, really showed that there was a need. Being a transplant coordinator for so many years, what is one of the biggest surprises that you are constantly asked that you thought, wow, they should know that? Uh, really, with transplant, it's a little bit of everything. Um, it falls into a lot of times patients don't even know what to ask, so they don't know what they don't know, which is a glaring issue. I, to be part of the the conversation, to be engaged, 
you really have to have a little bit of the seeds planted so that you can engage. So that's kind of a glaring thing that patients need someone to help them down that roadmap, um, you know, to show them which way to go. The other is um, in terms of medications. Some are surprised that they have to take anti-rejection medications for the rest of their life. They think, oh, maybe six months, maybe a year, things like that. But it's a long-term life uh, marriage, basically, to to the meds to keep functioning, as you know. Um, And if you don't take them, then you end up back on, on dialysis or, heaven forbid, you know, death. So the medications are very important. There's a lot of drug interactions, food interactions, things like that, that from an education standpoint need long-term reminders. And so that's what's handy, too, with the book that it's helpful for somebody if they're three, four years down the road and they forgot, oh, that's right, I'm not supposed to have grapefruit juice with, with my, um, you know, cyclo <laughs> or progress, things like that. Um, a reminder for sunscreen, um, even on cloudy days here in Southern California, things like that. Just important pointers that, that kind of need reiterated along the way. Um, aside from that, I'm trying to think, those are the, the biggies that kind of jump out at me that, that are surprising. But again, just helping patients maneuver through the system. Well, and I know that one of the things that I'm surprised about when I, I see on Facebook, like these little social groups, uh, I have a fever of 102. Do you think I have an infection? And they start asking for medical advice for people who aren't professionals. And or I have this rash. What do you think it is? And, you know, I'm a transplant patient. And, you know, then people are like, oh, what's this? It's that. And it's like, you know, go talk to your doctor. Don't play Google medicine. Right. And what's interesting in those replies, you see 15 people and 15 different replies on what they quote unquote think it is. So, again, you know, you've been given a transplant coordinator. You've got your nephrologist, whether it's at the center or your community nephrologist. Those are your point people. Those are the folks that you go to for reliable information. Um, And we've seen, you know, some not so great outcomes with patients that rely on, you know, the friend of a friend's neighbor's pool boy, whatever. That, that gave them, you know, what they thought was, was a good answer or a remedy to something when, in fact, it perhaps did them harm. And the other thing that I, I find very surprising, too, is that, you know, when you talk about medication, you have to take it twice a day. And if you miss a dose, and, you know, that happens. Sometimes you forget, and you should talk to your doctor if you should double up or what they want you to do. But you you have levels. So there was a, a, a patient that I know she got her blood work and the doctors knew she wasn't taking her medicine. It's really obvious because it creates levels in your bloodstream. Right. And, you know, she she was defiant, like, I'm taking the meds. And they're like, no, you're not. And she was in rejection. And she had to come to terms with, like, she just didn't do what she needed to do and was in denial about it. And uh, you can probably explain this better than anyone, but when you don't take your medicines, uh, can you talk about the immune response that happens in your body? Absolutely. And so your the best way and how I describe it to patients is if you cut your foot, you're on the, the, the beach wherever, you cut your foot, and you know how it gets red around the edges and um, maybe a little oozing out of it. That's your quote-unquote fighter cells kind of going to the site, trying to do some repairs to make it all better. The, it's probably the simplest terms, but mm-hmm. basically when a kidney is put in you, it's the same thing. You've got these fighter cells in your body, T cells, B cells, white cells. They're all searching like little Pac-Men looking for this foreign object. 
And so what happens when you take the anti-rejection medication, it blocks those signals. Each med works at a different area um, and blocks different signals, but it helps it reside in the body nice and harmoniously so that it can be there without cells attacking it. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. Yeah. It's like a little Pac-Man. So, exactly. And so if patients don't take their medications or they skip them, um, it leaves little openings for these fighter cells and, and T cells and B cells to get in there and wreak some havoc. Now, if you miss a dose, maybe not so horrible. If it's somebody that's constantly missing both doses, you're leaving the, the door wide open. And, and it makes it harder to get retransplanted. Right, That's because then you've got antibodies from that prior transplant. When it comes time for the next one, you know, you're in a little bit worse shape. Well, um, and it was, uh, you know, as you know, I've had four transplants, and the first two didn't really last. The third one lasted 20 years, and the fourth one's been a little over, God, I think seven years now. Knock on wood. I know, and, uh, you know, I was looking at my labs the other day, and they are all normal. I mean, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I just want to show these to the world. That's great. And uh, point, you know, GFR 88.7 creatinine. It's amazing. But when, um, you know, Dr. Jordan's team, which uh, we met through, uh, explained to me the fact that I've had all these transplants, I never stopped taking my medicine. And when I had my third transplant and I went back on dialysis, my transplant was still working. It was kind of puttering out. I had differences of opinion, like, oh, you don't need to take your transplant meds. And I continued to take my transplant meds all through uh, being on dialysis to my next medication because I never went into rejection at, with my third transplant. I, it just started to put her out. It got old. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, it was really interesting. I'm so thankful that I had the right doctors because I've heard other, you know, nephrologists who aren't specialists in transplants say, oh, you don't need the meds now that you're back on dialysis. And again, people need to know the difference between a nephrologist and a transplant doctor because a nephrologist is trained on kidney disease, and but they're not necessarily up to date on immunology and what the latest, you know, innovation is. <laughs> and you want somebody that, that is in that specialty. So a transplant nephrologist, um, especially community-based, that's where all the patients start. They generally have an internal medicine doctor who notices a little something. We're working, there's great strides being made trying to identify patients earlier. I know the National Kidney Foundation has um, recommendations out for early referrals, and obviously it leads to better outcomes down the road. So your internist should refer, refer you to a nephrologist who then hopefully refers you to a transplant nephrologist in a timely manner. And that's where it's almost a bell curve. Um, you've kind of got the outliers on each side and then kind of the pack in the middle. The ones obviously on the low side you don't want to go to. The ones on the high side almost should be at the transplant center. There's some nice. community folks that are really, really wonderful and great at detecting even small changes um, or small trends that it's time to jump on something where maybe the average you know, nephrologist and even transplant nephrologist, depending on how many patients they follow, um, as to how readily they pick up on something. Well, one of the things that I find fascinating is uh, patients can self-refer to a a transplant center. They don't need their 
their nephrologist to refer them. Right, and that was one of the big changes that I saw through the years. Early on, I remember in the early 90s, um, the doctor had to refer the patient. And there were actually two physicians here in L.A. who refused to refer patients for transplant because of the money they were making off of dialysis, which just kind of made me cringe because you know that the dialysis patients are out there. It's not that those chairs would be empty. Um, and so it was a real disservice to patients. And that's where you get into the ethics end of transplant, et cetera. And I touch on that in the book as well, that you you want everything being done in your best interest, patient in mind. And um, kind of an aside here, it's a good place to put it that I, I'm not afraid to ask or to recommend patients to ask their physician, is this what you would recommend for your wife, husband, brother, sister, you know, when you're having these discussions, to throw that on the table. And sometimes it brings that physician back to, oh, wait, you know, this isn't a cookie-cutter kind of thing. Wait a minute, this is impacting somebody's life. It's not, you know, a rote exercise. No, engage in the conversation and and um, make it come full circle. Well, and you're eligible for a kidney transplant at a GFR of 20 or below, and typically, I mean, I'm I don't you know I'm not a medical professional, but you know people go on dialysis anywhere from like an eight to a four, 14 GFR. Uh-huh. So if you are eligible to get on the transplant list, and you have to get on the transplant list before you can get a living donor transplant, people don't always understand that. But you know you might as well get listed as soon as you can because you create waiting time. And you should be under somebody's care, you know, when you're in that sixty to eighty kind of even right. as they're seeing the renal function declining. You should be in the care of a nephrologist and then a transplant nephrologist. Well, and then one of the other great breakthroughs that uh, is, you know, there's testing now for donor-specific antibodies, and there's a lot of things you can do if you start to show any signs of rejection to, you know, stay on top of it, stay on top of it with your doctor uh, so that they could potentially prevent a rejection from happening if it's, that wasn't around 20 years ago. It's amazing to me. It is amazing, and the medications that have changed as well. I mean, one that comes to mind right off the bat is Belatacept, which is a once-a-month infusion, and um, they're seeing if it's used early that those DSAs um, are addressed, et cetera. Patients do really well. Um, they also use it as an observed monitoring of immunosuppression. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned sometimes patients, you know, if they're not taking their medications, that's a good avenue as well. They have to go to a center to have that infusion once a month, so you know they're getting their immunosuppression. Um, but then your traditional cyclo and, and um, prograph and, and those medications um, that have been out there for a long time, they're able to tailor those to specific patients, to specific DSAs and treatments. And, of course, there's all kinds of IV meds um, that are given as well that it's really custom tailored. I think back again to the 90s that, you know, there were maybe two recipes or cocktails, if, if you will, of immunosuppression that were given. And you look now, and if you looked at 10 patients, they could be on eight different, you know, protocols and medication combinations, um, et cetera. And especially if they're highly sensitized, things like that, it, it enters a whole nother realm of medication. Well, and what's really you know, fascinating to me is because I was one of those people who's transplanted in the 79 and, and, you know, they gave you so much steroids and Imuran that people didn't really want to transplant. I mean, the, the treatment for the transplant was almost worse than dialysis. 
And people often ask me, how did you get four transplants, you know? And I'm like, well, I've lived long enough to get them because, uh, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, there wasn't the long list that there is today. In fact, um, it was it, there wasn't hardly a list at all because people didn't want to sign up for, you know, basically you were an experiment. And, you know, sometimes it worked, but most of the time it didn't. And now the success rate's way over 90, 95%. I think in some centers are 98% right. for the first year, which is just amazing. And uh, those are great odds to take when you have to face a healthcare decision. So you wrote this book, The Kidney Transplant, The Patient's Guide. What kind of feedback have you been getting? The feedback has been really, really good, um, and that was really my goal, to have it an accessible, you know, low-priced, uh, you know, option for people to have at their at their ready. A funny story, though, the, the actual first posting that I had feedback-wise on Amazon was a person who just replied, dank. And I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe I was showing my age at that point. I thought somebody received a musty, moldy book. Um, but apparently, in the lingo of today, that means awesome. So, <laughs> Oh, dank is awesome? Okay. That was good feedback, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? Maybe we need to write a book in current slang so we can exactly. stay young and cool. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It's uh, uh, well now. I'm now I'm going to sound like a total geek, but true that, right? <laughs> um, oh, you've been hanging with those teens. <laughs> I know at the prom, but you know, as soon as I learn the slang, they're onto something else. That I sound like I'm just a old person trying to be cool. So, <laughs> well, and, and where can you get the book, Jackie? So the book is available on Amazon. It's also at some local bookstores here in Los Angeles, um, Romans in Pasadena, and then their outlet in Hastings Ranch has some copies, as well as La Cunada Bookstore and Coffee Shop. Okay. And but then the Amazon. The majority are on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking at it today, and you can get it in one day. That's amazing. They must print it in the back room and ship it, right? <laughs> it's print on demand, which is kind of interesting. Um, the entire book writing process was interesting for me coming from a clinical nurse background. Um, and how it came to be was I'd actually started it, I don't know, 10, 11 years ago. And the pharma company that I was working for at the time said, wow, this is a great idea, but we want the rights to it. And so they said, well... We'll take everything. So I hired an intellectual property attorney to uh, attorney to maneuver, basically because it's the transplant coordinator and patient, you know, foundation of the logistics of transplant. It's not a company or a particular company's ideas or material. So I shelved it. I figured, you know what, they're not getting the rights to it. This is some great material. And um, then they finally came back and they said, well, you can publish it, but you can't put in a medication section. What? So that's like selling a car with three wheels. Right. So again, shelved it. And then fast forward, I returned to, to do my master's program about a year and a half ago and finished it last year. And so part of my capstone, I had actually done an educational website for a local um, dialysis unit in Santa Barbara, the Santa Barbara Kidney Center. And so I figured at that point, I'll take it, put it into a book um, and publish it that way. But even then, looking at publishers, they want to take 95% of, of the rights and profits, et cetera. Um, and so I really didn't want to give up that end of it. And so self-published it. 
which is really, uh, talk about a learning curve. That's the best way to go nowadays. <laughs> yeah, and using Amazon, they've got a great service to writers that it's print on demand, and so I can update it as it's needed. If there's a new medication that comes to market, I can add that in. If there's a major change in protocols you know, across the board somewhere, I can add that in. If there's changes here and there, um, some of the bills that I referenced, there's a section on some of the, the um, chronic kidney disease bills as those, you know, either fall by the wayside, new ones come in, some are approved, it's easily updatable. And so the Amazon route was, was a really good way to go to keep it current. You know what, technology can be so fascinating, and I know it can be a very frustrating when you're um, trying to create a book online, but it, once you learn the process, it's not all that difficult, is it? <laughs> there was a learning curve, though, and I still, every now and then I'll open it, and there's a little editing miss, you know, there's a period or a colon that's kind of out of place that, you know, just missed everybody's eyes, that there were about eight reviewers, uh, an editor, myself, that, you know, you, I guess you look at it so much, too, that you're so close to it. But. You'll find typos till the end of time they just seem to <laughs> pop up and it's it's amazing how um you can overlook some of the things but hey that that shows that uh, it was written by a real person and not a computer right right exactly <laughs> well jackie thank you so much for um sharing your knowledge and, and most importantly your enthusiasm i mean i i've known you for many years you're you you never you never get burned out. It's amazing. And I meet people who get burned out like they used to be excited and they're not. And, you know, maybe you should bottle some of that enthusiasm and, and take that to market. I'll, I'll work on that. I, it's it's really, like I said, it's easy to, to be enthused when you really love it and you're really helping people. Um, and I, I just want to give a shout out to you as well of appreciation for everything you do um, with RSN on your own and, and with RSN as well. But all of the offerings, you know, the kidney disease education meetings and, of course, the prom and the poker tournament fundraiser, things like that. But your advocacy um, the podcasts like we're doing here, your support group meetings, Studio Hope. What a what a great way to balance and an outlet for patients to, you know, we say work life balance, but for patients, it's the balancing of work and life and chronic disease that. Studio Hope. I mean, I kind of like it myself, even as a nurse, to just kind of let off some steam, use some creativity. Um, what a wealth of resources you offer for patients! And so I'm just I'm happy to have been involved and, and continue to be involved with what you're doing. Well, thank you so much. Until the next event. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.